0: Good morning. Happy Easter. And yeah, I don't usually wear a suit, but Easter only comes once a year. And you know what? Last year, Easter, we weren't here. We were sitting at home. And you may say, oh yeah, those were the days. Stop it. This is great. This is so wonderful. Last year, it was so hard not to be able to worship with you and celebrate the Lord's resurrection together as a family. And this year we get to do it. And I hope we never miss it again. This is a, a great privilege to be together. I enjoy singing with you. I enjoy singing with the, our, our worship band. I enjoy praising and praying together with my church family. And I hope you'll turn with me to John chapter 11 as we close out this series today. John 11. Uh, we're, we're finishing our series on the I Am Statements of Jesus. And I want to start off with kind of an unusual question. Aside from Jesus himself, who would you say has made the biggest sacrifice for you? And if your mind immediately turns to your parents, that's a, that's a good thought. I doubt that anybody, you know, if my mom or dad, especially if my mom uh, were to present me with a bill for all the hours she spent worrying about me and caring for me, uh, times that she spent teaching me, my dad too, just watching over me and and taking care of my needs and, and all the money they spent on us, I mean, I'd never be able to pay it back. And you're probably in the same position. Maybe you think of a particular American hero who laid down his or her life for our country, or maybe you've been someone who was the beneficiary of the incredible skills and courage of a skilled EMT or a firefighter or a police officer. Maybe you think of a close friend. I I know of one minister who literally donated his kidney to a church member who needed a transplant. Now, that's the very definition of going above and beyond the call. I can promise you that's not in my job description, right? But I want, to pres- I want to propose someone you probably haven't thought of, and that is a certain guy named Lazarus. Now, a lot of you know this story, but some of you don't. Lazarus lived 2,000 years ago in a little village called Bethany, a couple of miles from Jerusalem. He and his sisters, Mary and Martha, were very close friends with Jesus of Nazareth. They, had, they hosted Jesus and his disciples in their home on several occasions. And in John 11, Lazarus actually dies and Jesus raises him to life. Now, I know you think I've given away the whole story, but I haven't. The point I wanna make to you is, Lazarus was dead four days. In those four days, I believe that he experienced what most of us have never seen and can't imagine, the the glory of God in heaven, heaven's throne room. You might say, well, it doesn't say in the Bible that he went to heaven. Well, where do you think he went? I met a man once who flatlined for 90 full minutes. He was in a car accident on a a bridge in East Texas. When they got to him, he was legally dead. An hour and a half later, a guy was praying over his cast, over the tarp that they'd laid over the car and began singing a hymn and heard the body on the other side of that tarp sing along with him. That's how they knew this man was actually back alive. During that time, 90 minutes, he believes he was in heaven. He wrote a book about it, you may have read it. Now I have to say as a pastor, I don't put a lot of stock in these near-death experience books and and movies and documentaries. Uh, Honestly, some of them have already been disproven. People have come out and said, yeah, I made it up. and honestly, everything we need to know about heaven is in the scriptures. We don't need these other experiences that people have had. Even if they are telling the truth, how do we know whether it's a, a, a hallucination or not? So I, I'm just telling you, if you read these books, if you see these movies, don't put them on the same level with scripture. But I will say this man, having spent some time around him, having gotten to know his heart, I believe he's sincere. He's sincere. I believe he at least believes his own story. He believes that he went to heaven when he, when he died for 90 minutes. And the interesting thing about it is, if you read his book, when he came back to this earth, instead of walking around saying, yay, I'm back, he was depressed for years and years. In fact, it took him years to even tell the story of what he experienced for those 90 minutes. Was he glad that he got to live with his wife again? Yes. Was he glad that he got to see his children grow up? Of course But mostly his thought was, God, I was there. Why didn't you just leave me? God, I I had everything I wanted. Why did you take it away? Now, if that's true of a man who thinks he experienced it for an hour and a half, how much more true is it of a man who was there for four solid days? Why would Jesus do that? Why would he do that to this man, his good friend? And I'll tell you why. He did it for you and for me. He did it so that we might believe Look at verse 14. Then Jesus, oh, by the way, skipping over something. Jesus first got word that Lazarus was sick. He was up in the northern end of Israel in Galilee, where he was from. Lazarus and his sisters were down on the south in, in the village of Bethany. They sent word to Jesus. I mean, they had to tr- basically traverse the entire country to get word to him, which meant he didn't just have the sniffles, he was dying. Now, we know, if you read the Gospels, Jesus never failed to heal anybody who he wanted to heal. So if Jesus would have gotten uh, on the road at that moment and gotten to Bethany as quick as he could, he could have saved Lazarus' life. Instead, John 11 says he waited two days. Why? In verse 14, he says, Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him so that you may believe I let my friend die. And now I'm going to bring him back. So you might believe. Believe what? That's what I'm here to talk to you about. So Jesus gets to the little little village of Bethany. And Lazarus has been dead for four days. And something you need to understand about the difference between that culture and ours. In our culture, mourning and grieving are something we seem sort of embarrassed by. We try to keep it... under guard or or in the dark we don't want to see people crying or weeping we might have a funeral for a loved one but if we do we we dress in our best clothes and we try to be very reserved and sedate in fact as you're leaving the funeral next time you go to a funeral just notice people will say oh I think she's doing pretty well why because she was very stoic The, the widow or the widower on the other hand if they're falling apart we say oh man boy he's not taking this well but in the ancient world it was completely different if you lost a loved one, you wept and you wailed. And if you had friends that wanted to support you, the way they supported you was they put on their worst clothes and they tore their garments and they, they put dust on their heads and they walked to your house and they sat there with you and wept alongside of you. And the longer they wept and the louder they wailed, the more they were honoring your loved one. And this is the scene that Jesus comes upon. Lazarus was a young man, died before his time, left these two sisters who, because of the way the world worked back then, would not be able to support themselves economically. So the whole village of Bethany has turned out, and they're still weeping and wailing four days later. And Jesus comes upon this scene, and the person who meets him at the edge of the village is Martha. Martha of the two sisters is the practical one. She's the one who says, hey, let's get things done. She meets Jesus and she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Not an accusation, just a statement of fact. And here's Jesus's response. Verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me. Though he die, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? He walks a little further comes to the house and there's Mary, the, the other sister, the intuitive one, the, the one who sees herself as a disciple, even though, even though it wasn't considered correct for women back then to be disciples. They're supposed to keep house so the men can follow. No, Mary says, I don't care what society says. I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm going to sit at his feet. I'm going to listen to his teachings. I'm going to follow him. And yet for all the differences between Mary and Martha, ordinarily their, their, their heartbeat is the same on this day. She says, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Now, look what happens next, verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled, and he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Now, if you're my age or older and you grew up in church, there was probably a time when a Sunday school teacher or two or three challenged you and said, hey, go home, memorize a verse of scripture and come back and repeat it to us this next week. Now, if you're one of those people, I want you to raise your hand if at some point in your child, child-going life you once memorized John eleven thirty five. 35. Anybody? Yeah, this is the honest congregation, right? Why did you memorize Oh, because it's really profound. No, because it's short. It's the shortest verse in the whole Bible, two two verses. The few people ever, ever stop to ask, well, why did Jesus weep? You know, there are only two times in the Bible where Jesus is recorded as weeping I believe he probably wept often. Isaiah 53 says he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. But there's only two times the Bible actually tells us about, and this is one of them. And this is the one that doesn't make any sense because out of all the people in that area, he's the only one who knows that something great is about to happen. So why is he weeping? This is one of those rare cases. I know preachers like to show off Greek and act like they know things. Truth is, your English Bible is more than sufficient. This is one of those rare cases where it's helpful to know a little something about Greek because John wrote his gospel in the Greek language and in the Greek language when it says Jesus was deeply moved and troubled. It's a Greek word that doesn't really have a good cognate in English because it literally means he snorted like a beast If you've ever raised cattle or if you've ever raised horses, if you're in a pen with an animal that is bigger than you and it snorts, that's not good news. That means you better climb the fence and get out of there because that animal is angry. And that is the verb that John chose in Greek to describe what Jesus was feeling at that moment. It wasn't sorrow. It was rage. Now, why would Jesus be angry? He wasn't angry at people weeping, that's entirely appropriate, he wept himself. No, I will submit to you and I will believe this till the day I die, he was angry at death. Imagine you you take as much money as you have to throw the biggest party you've ever thrown, whether it's a wedding reception for your loved one, or whether it's a birthday party, or just, hey, let's, I just want to bless everyone I know. And you invite all your closest friends, all the people you love the most, and then an outsider comes and crashes your party, somebody who hasn't bathed in a week, somebody who's loud and obnoxious and vulgar and profane and just saying awful things and bothering everybody and double-dipping and all the dip and he's just ruining the party. Would you be angry? Yes, you'd be angry. I don't even know some of you and I know you'd be angry. Why? Because you did this for those people and their time is being ruined by this squatter, this uninvited guest for God in the form of Jesus Christ, the word made flesh who created all things. Death is the ultimate uninvited guest crashing his party ruining the lives of all his party goers and it makes him angry give you a little word of testimony when i felt first felt called to go into the ministry as a vocation i was around 22 years old and i was excited about god taking me in this direction but i remember saying okay but i'll never be a pastor no way i could be a pastor mainly because i knew that pastors do funerals And I just couldn't see myself standing up in front of grieving people and and speaking words of comfort to them. Fast forward 25, 26, however many years, okay, don't do the math. Fast forward a long time. And there is nothing that I am more honored to do as a pastor than officiate a funeral. I I know this sounds bad, but I'd rather do a funeral than a wedding any day. I mean, nothing against, if you're a bride, love you, great, it's my honor kind of a headache. <laughs> you're just, I'm just a necessary evil, right? You're just, you're just wanting to get married. A funeral, though, is an opportunity to minister to people. There are people sitting in there who never go to church. This is their one opportunity to hear that God doesn't actually hate them, that God isn't up there laughing with glee that they're going to hell, that he actually wants them in his family. And beyond that, as a pastor... When someone I know passes away, whether it's a family member or a member of my church, I wanna get the opportunity to speak words of comfort to those who are hurting. I wanna get the opportunity to try to sum up their life. That is something I feel honored to do. In fact, this may be my ego, but I have a hard time letting somebody else do a funeral because I just feel like I need to do that. It's my contribution. And yet having said all of that, when I stand up there as much as I feel honored, as much as I feel gratitude, I also feel anger whenever I do a funeral. Any pastor that's worth anything feels the same because I'm thinking, why her? Why now? Why him? Why do these kids have to go on without their father, mother, grandparent? Why why are these parents having to bury their child? This is not right. You take that emotion and you multiply it by infinity and that's what Jesus was feeling. That's why he was angry. He knows I'm about to eject death from the party. But for now, I can't do it yet because the time hasn't come and it makes me angry. The, the, The sight of what it was doing to all the people around him angered him. And so in verse 38, it says, then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. Picture a man, there's that word again, deeply moved. Picture a man who's not sad. He's rolling up his sleeves, getting ready for a fight. Somebody's about to get their tail kicked, and it's death. It says, it was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Again, Martha, very practical, always thinking of practical things. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Now, believe it or not, Lazarus never speaks once in the Bible. Lazarus never says a word. And some of you ladies are thinking that makes him the perfect man. (laughs) So we don't know how Lazarus felt. I imagine, but I can't prove. I imagine that Lazarus at, at some point sat down with Jesus and said, so why'd you do it? I mean, all the people you could have brought back from the dead, why me? Why did you bring me back here? And if he did, I believe Jesus' answer to him was the same as his answer to the disciples and to Mary and Martha, so that they might believe. Believe what? Believe that I am the resurrection and the life. There's only one. There's only one solution to the problem of death. The the uninvited guest that we can't eject from our party, the bully that haunts us, that we know someday when we're walking home from school, he's gonna pound us. There's only one solution, and that's Jesus. He is the resurrection and the life, and he proved it. There's a verse of scripture, a passage, I should say, that's being read today in churches around the world. Red, yellow, black, white, all language groups. They're reading this passage for a reason. 1 Corinthians 15 51 says behold I tell you a mystery we shall not all sleep but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet for the trumpet will sound and the dead shall be raised imperishable and we shall be changed for this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. For the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? What that means is you and I get our own personal Easter someday. Just as Jesus rose from the dead, On the third day after his death, you and I will rise again too. Yes, yes, the Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. If you're in Christ Jesus, the moment you stop breathing earthly air, you wake up in heavenly air. You're in the presence of God. Yes, and that's glorious and that's wonderful, but it's not even the best part. When we're up there with him, when we're in that heavenly realm in the, in the presence of the king, we're still waiting for something even better and that is the return of Jesus to this world and, and taking the throne of this world and this world becoming fully redeemed. And when that happens, that verse that I just read and many others say, our graves will pop open, our bodies will reconstitute in whatever form they're in and we will be changed into something that we've always wanted to be and that is physically perfect and imperishable and immortal. That's our future, and therefore we can shake our fist at death, and therefore we can talk loud around the bully because our father has kicked the bully to the curb. We don't have to worry about death. I'm getting ahead of myself. If that's true, if you believe that's true, let me just ask, do you believe that's true? Do you believe that's true? If you believe it, it should change you in some very important ways. If Jesus is more than just someone who came down and gave us some really good tips about life, if he's more even than the person who died for our sins, but he's actually the one who defeated death for us, it should change us in at least these four ways. Number one, it should change the way we think about death. Scripture says that many became believers that day because of Lazarus rising from the dead. And in fact, the enemies of Jesus hatched a plot to try to kill Lazarus at some point. I don't know if they ever succeeded or not, but you can understand why. The man's a walking billboard for the gospel. Everywhere he walks, people are like, hey, that's that guy that rose from the dead. Wait, someone rose from the dead? Yes, didn't you hear the story? And the story would be told again and more people would believe. And then church tradition tells us that many of those early Christians, not just that first generation, but the second and the third and the fourth, they actually went to their deaths proclaiming Christ as martyrs for the faith. So literally, you're talking about thousands of men and women who are faced with a choice, standing before their governing body, council, king, whatever the case may be, saying, okay, renounce Jesus. Tell us that it was all just a story, that he wasn't really risen, and we'll let you go. But otherwise, you're gonna burn alive, or you're gonna get your head lopped off, or you're gonna be crucified, or you're gonna be torn by wild beasts. But you better say what we tell you to say. And these people went to their death with joy in their hearts. In some stories, the, the flames were licking at their feet, and they were singing hymns. Some of y'all won't sing and you're sitting in a pew, for goodness sakes. how could they have this kind of attitude? Because they knew this life isn't it. This life is just the beginning. You're killing me, I, I, I wish it was in a gentler way, You know, put a pillow over my face or something, but hey, you're doing me a favor. You're putting me right where I've always wanted to be. It should change the way we look at our own death, but also the death of our loved ones. Listen, I, I need to say this, there's nothing wrong with grief, in fact, Grief is a holy thing. The Psalms say that God keeps every one of our tears in a bottle. He cares about what we weep about. Jesus himself wept at a graveside. If you are a Christian, whoever finds yourself trying to get somebody to snap out of grief, stop it. That's not your job. If they're still sad three months after their loved ones died or six months or nine months or a year, that's not your problem. They have the right to grieve as long as they feel the need to grieve. And so if you're still struggling over the loss of a loved one or you're still struggling with PTSD or you're still struggling with some form of mourning and grief, God's not embarrassed about that. But remember, we don't grieve like those who have no hope. Our grief is different. Our grief, I don't want to minimize it, but when you think about it from the span of eternity, our grief is sort of like the grief of a child who's been dropped off at a babysitter's house. A little kid. Remember when you were a little kid and you didn't want mom to take you to the babysitter's? And I don't like Aunt Edna. Mom, you know, she's got enough hair on her lip to be the Marlboro Man. She's, she's just scary. I don't like Becky Sue, the teenager that watches me because she just talks to her boyfriend the whole time and she doesn't pay any attention to me and I'm bored. And so you would cry because you missed your parents and you're a little kid and it's hard, but you don't cry because you think you're never gonna see them again. That's our grief. It's temporary, it hurts, but it's temporary. It ought to change number two. The way we look at aging, and I know a lot of you in this service haven't even started thinking about that, but some of you have, and those of you who haven't will. I promise you that. Do you know that Americans every year spend over $80 billion on anti-aging? So coloring your hair, wrinkle creams, supplements, alternative therapies, voodoo, I don't know what they do, but it's some kind of attempt to not get old. And if Jesus is the resurrection and the, and the life, what are we doing? Why are we clinging to youth like a German shepherd with a pork chop, right? Why, why do we think, oh my goodness, if I don't look like I look now, I'm, I'm just gonna die? Well, yeah, literally you are, but <laughs> there's a lot of life to be lived before then. And when you think about it, if you think, those, okay, those of you who are under 30 right now, you may think, okay, once I hit 40, it's all over you got a lot of years left to live. A lot of good years left to live. 1 Timothy 4.8, Paul says, physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. What Paul is saying there is, yeah, if you want to work on your body, if you want to do push-ups, if you want to run, if you want to walk, if you want to do aerobics, if you want to moisturize, good for you. I mean, this, this vessel that God has given us is a gift. Take good care of it. If someone gave you a car for free, respectful thing to do would be to change the oil every, four, every three months or however long it is. Rotate the tires, keep it washed. But that car is not gonna last forever and neither is your body. I don't care how much moisturizer you use, you're not gonna look like you're 25 for the rest of your life. I know You reach a certain point where it doesn't get better. (laughs) And that's okay because the person you are becoming does last forever. So let me ask you the question, which one do you spend more time on? The way you look in the mirror or the person you're becoming? Paul says physical training is of some value. I get that. A lot of you take real good care of your appearance and I'm glad. Frankly, I like being the pastor of an attractive congregation. That's just the shallow part of me. But... The person you're becoming, which one do you spend more time on? What you see in the mirror or what lasts forever? Number three, if Jesus is the resurrection and the life, it should change the way we look at time everything we do is is in a hurry these days i i got to get to work on time i got to get this project finished by today so the boss doesn't yell at me i got to leave before traffic gets heavy got to get the kids to bed so i can watch netflix got to get to bed myself or i'll feel terrible in the morning got to get married soon my biological clock is ticking got to get a better job got to reach the top got to cross all these items off my bucket list before i die got to go to paris got to go to alaska got to go to argentina got to go to hong kong what is happening here? Are we really blessing ourselves? Are we happier for being in such a rush? I I remember being in a grocery store several years back, and and I was in the line for one of those self-check, you know, they had those self-check kiosks, there were four of them, and it was rush hour, and so there was this long line, and I'm standing there with my little red basket with my five items, and the people at the front of the line, they're the worst, because all of them are acting like, I've never seen technology before. And so they're, you know, they're box of Raisin Bran, okay, where's the barcode on this thing? And then another box of Raisin Bran, they look at it again, like they've forgotten. And and you're just sitting there and and there's somebody looking at her phone while she should be scanning. And there's this woman behind me. And I glanced at her and so I could tell she was about the age, my mom, she's she's old enough to be my mom. Uh, She was dressed in such a way that she looked like an executive. You could tell she got things done in real life, right? And have you ever been around someone where you didn't even have to look at them, you could tell they were getting mad by how their breathing changed? So, so I'm watching you know, these four morons up front and she's just getting angrier and angrier, just huffing and, and sighing and clicking her tongue. And, and, and so when I got up to the front of the line with my five little items, I was like Usain Bolt. I mean, I was like, boop, 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 I'm done. And as I walk out, I just couldn't help myself. I had to turn around and look at this woman and I made eye contact with her and she gave me this. (laughs) It's like, yeah, I felt validated. But what's the deal with this? Why are we in such a hurry? Did she have, was she, was there someone at home who was dying that she needed to go and visit before they breathed their last? I doubt it. See, hurry doesn't help. Whatever you don't accomplish in this world, it's going to be far overshadowed by the fact that you're going to become like Jesus. The greatest accomplishment ever is guaranteed as long as you're in the vine. Whatever you don't get to experience in this world, okay, so you say you don't get to go check off all those items on your bucket list. Your bucket list is going to look like playing in the mud compared to what you're going to experience in the new earth you're gonna have unlimited things to explore and unlimited time to explore it. There is literally nothing you will get to heaven and say, yeah, doggone it, but I wish I would have experienced this. But I'll tell you what you will miss. You'll miss the opportunity to tell somebody about Jesus who doesn't know him. You'll miss the opportunity to help somebody who's hurting. You'll miss the opportunity to weep alongside a good friend You'll miss the opportunity to make friends with someone who doesn't have any friends, to invest in the life of someone younger who needs someone to guide them through life, and most of all, to share the gospel with someone who's separated from God. Those opportunities won't exist in the next life, so there is no hurry if Christ is the resurrection in the life, but there is gospel urgency. Pray, friend, pray that you would have that kind of gospel urgency, and it would replace this foolish hurry that you're in all the time. And then finally, number four, if Jesus is the resurrection and life, it should change the way we view success. What would you say about a man who was born into wealth but lost it all, whose father said, you're out of the family, you're not welcome in the family business, who died far from home without a dime to his name and is buried in a pauper's grave? That sounds like failure, doesn't it? There's a man named William Borden, who I just described, Born about 100 years ago, his father was one of the wealthiest men in America. William was a strong Christian. He inherited his mother's faith, you might say, learned from her. Uh, As he graduated from high school, his family sent him on a trip around the world because apparently that's what rich people do. And as he traveled around the world, his heart was broken as he saw the lostness, the brokenness, the poverty of this world And he determined right then, I can't follow in the family business. I've got to meet the needs of these people. And so he felt this call to worldwide missions. And very specifically, he felt called to the Muslim people of China, which isn't it ironic today, 100 years later, it's it's the Uyghurs in China, this Muslim group that is being put to death in concentration camps by the Chinese government. William Borden had a heart for those people all those years ago. He went off to Yale where he was accepted. By the time he was done, he had started a Bible club and a thousand of the 1300 members or 1300 students of Yale University went to that Bible club every week. Can you imagine? The one campus where if you're not in the Bible club, you're not cool. He started a homeless mission. He inherited his money from his father because his father died during his time at Yale. Father had had told him, "You're not you're out of the family now. You can't if you're not gonna follow in my footsteps, I don't wanna see you, but forgot to write him out of the will. So William inherits all this money, donates it immediately to all these mission causes. Then he goes to Cairo to study Arabic so he can tell Muslims about Jesus in the language they read the Quran in. And while he's in Cairo studying, he contracts a disease and dies at the age of 25. And then his story is written and thousands of people, having read it, are inspired to enter the mission field themselves. And thousands upon thousands more are inspired to support and pray for mission work and to change the way they live. And if you go to Cairo today, it's very hard to find. It's in a lousy part of town, but there's this old abandoned cemetery. And in that cemetery, there's a headstone that says William Borden across the top. And it lists all the hospitals and orphanages and churches that were built with the money he donated and all the people he inspired. And then at the bottom, it says this sentence, apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. And so I ask you, what is the explanation for your life? Someday, some preacher is going to stand over your casket and preach a funeral sermon. How is he, how am I, going to sum up your life? Jesus lived a life that could be described as a failure as well. When he died, he had a few hundred followers, tops. He was executed as a criminal of the state after being rejected by his people. He died penniless never built a building, never held public office, never wrote a book, never left anything in fact except two things, the Holy Spirit and the gospel. Think about all he gave up to come to this world and to meet that kind of an end. Why would he do it? Because he's the resurrection and the life. Because we needed rescuing and only he could rescue. And so let me ask you again the question, do you believe this?